Temple University is ranked among the top 50 public universities in the U.S. Through hands-on learning opportunities and world-class faculty, Temple students are prepared to soar in their careers. Schedule a campus tour today at admissions.temple.edu. visit Recorded live. Okay, trying one last time. Can you guys hear me? Please, please, please. Okay, trying one last time. Can you guys hear me? And you don't have a weird echo that I seem to kind of have? Okay, it shows you're, everybody's unmuted. Hang on. I'm going to have to sign out and sign back in again, so sit tight. It's somehow, ugh.
Okay, we're trying. Okay, we're trying again, guys. Can you hear me? Please say yes. Because other than that, I don't know what the heck to do. Oh, thank goodness. Okay, we're moving right in to the show. I'm going to start the intro over and see if Ron can edit this later so it doesn't sound so horrible on the replay. So we're going to start. This is Charlene Anderson, your wholesale sourcing expert here on June 22nd, 2016, to talk about talking with wholesalers and trade shows and all sorts of stuff like that. Um, I just got back from a trade show in Washington, D.C., and it was a quite a different experience. This is a show I go to every year, so I'm familiar with a lot of the businesses and just the whole vibe of the show. Um, and I have to say, um, um, the um, the weird part is how much vendors have changed in the years since I've been to the show. Um, the feeling was quite different when I said said the words, "I'm an online only retailer." That's my first things when they because in this in the knitting and needlepoint field, the vast majority of vendors are brick and mortar, um, hugely skewed that way. Um, so the thing I say is I'm an online-only retailer. And last year, the exact same show, almost exactly a year ago to the day, it, um, it gave some weird vibes from people like, we don't, want, we don't want online. We don't want our stuff sold online. Um, some flat out said, no, we don't we don't want to compete with the local yarn store. And LYS is an acronym for local yarn store, and that's where people go for help. And, and I'm trying to educate the whole segment of the industry that not everybody has a store that they can drive to to do their thing. So you cannot um, rule out a whole segment of the, the economy that doesn't have a local yarn store. You know, if you live somewhere where it's 100 miles, you most likely aren't going to get there very often, and you're going to want to find products online. And the big issue that the vendors for um, yarn store stuff say is, well, online sellers will undercut my, the local yarn stores. Well, I, you know, my argument is not if you choose your online vendors carefully and set in place agreements like a map agreement or uh, whatever that it takes, you know, that, that they won't undercut a local yarn store. And you, you try to expand your market by, by getting people who don't have one. As Deborah says, she doesn't have a local yarn store. And she doesn't live in a little teeny tiny town. But there is this perception that, that everybody online is bad. Okay, that's the first perception, especially local yarn store owners think all of us who sell online are like the bad guys. And so I actually never say it to other um, buyers who are there, what I do, unless they're really specific. And then I say, I live in a small town where, you know, I can relate to the millions of other Americans who live in small towns who don't have access to stuff. So um, last year huge pushback from the vendors about we don't want to hurt our local yarn stores, we won't sell to any online-only vendors, or they will only allow you to sell online if you also have a brick-and-mortar store. Which then that kind of, it's like, I don't know, let me know in chat, but I kind of think that's like a weird 
excuse for doing it because they could sell online really cheap and undercut all the other local yarn stores except them, but because they have to have they happen to have a brick and mortar store, it's okay. So um, <clears throat> this year, I found there was less pushback from vendors for being an online only store, and I think part of it is sales are down for everybody. They reported. Um, numbers out about the show relating to last year's show and and booth there was like 10% less booth there was like 9% less buyers like me and you registered um for the show uh so i'm thinking that that these manufacturers and wholesalers are now realizing that in order to survive um they're going to have to allow online to take over. Online is now 10% of all the retail sales in the U.S. That was a number I read last week, 10%. And it's not going to get smaller. It's going to get bigger. So um, so that's a good thing for us as online sellers is, is that there um, is less pushback for these online-only sellers from the vendors. Um, Bay, to answer your question, no, um, not a lot of these vendors sell themselves online. Um, fortunately, the majority of them realize that what they do best is manufacture products and wholesale them, um, and they leave the retail part to the rest of us. Um, and that's, I can only say that's in my niche, the, the arts and crafts niche. Um, it's less prevalent in the knitting niche than in the general craft niche, because I went to the craft and hobby show um, in January, and there were vendors there who sold uh, themselves online far higher percentage than was at this show. So I think it's kind of niche specific. Um, Deborah, I don't know about that 10%, um, and I can't remember where I heard it. It was sometime last week, and I will look and see exactly what it said, and I'll post in the group about it. Um, so we'll see, um, but it it was 10%, and I kind of thought it was low, but then when you think of all the, the people just going to the, this includes everything purchased retail, from groceries to gasoline, everything that you buy retail. So when you kind of think about it that way, that the whole grocery part is part of that retail sales figure, then maybe 10% does actually seem like it's it's reasonable. I mean, for me, it's like I buy 95% of my stuff online. Um, the only thing we don't is groceries, um, pretty much everything, you know. We just bought, um, yeah, kind of hard to buy gas online. Yeah, kind of. would be hazmat to ship, I think. Um, we just bought stuff to repair our driveway, this stuff that was talked about in Family Handyman magazine, and, and the Family Handyman had a link right to Amazon to buy it, you know. Um, so... Anyway, um, Bay, that is an issue. Many of the vendors sell direct to Amazon. Um, and I kind of look at it as our job to educate them why that's not a good idea. And not a good idea for us because you have to make it why it's not good for them. And um, some that have done it and have gotten burned really understand, but it's hard to tell the ones um, that haven't tried it yet why it's not a good idea. And the major one you can say is cash flow. Amazon wants to take 90 to 120 days to pay for your product, and then they only want to pay for what has sold, and they want to send the rest back. So you as a, say you're a small manufacturer making stuff out of a little warehouse, you know, in your hometown, 
that'll kill you. 120 days to wait to get paid um, and then only get paid for what they sell. You know, that's a case of why not just sell it yourself on Amazon, you know, um, or find a third-party vendor like us who takes that middle thing out and we pay you for the products. We don't sit, sit on it like Amazon does, you know. And, and um, so I kind of look that that's our job is to educate the vendors, you know, if they're thinking about it or if they've jumped in. And I think you'll find that that's the biggest thing that will hurt them as a vendor is the fact that Amazon will take forever to pay them. And we can say, hey, your stuff will be on Amazon. It will be available prime just like if Amazon sold it. But we'll pay you for it now. You know, we won't wait 90 to 120 days to pay you for it. So that's our push. Um, I did have a case of a, a vendor at this um, show. She sells hand-dyed yarn, and she has kits and stuff um, that are really cute, really well packaged, which is nice. You know, these would be great for gifts because the packaging is just adorable. Um, it's not packaging that will break or get damaged, which is even better. And yarn won't get damaged if it's in a poly bag, you know, the whole thing's put in a poly bag. So I approached her on the last day about carrying her stuff. And I said, you know, Susie, I'm an online-only retailer. Um, I said, and I, and I don't know what made me say it, and I sell a lot on Amazon. Because um, most of the time I don't bring up Amazon at the beginning, but I think because it was the last day and I'm just like, I'll just lay it all out there, you know. Um, so she goes, oh, really? I I said, yeah, and I think your products would do really well on Amazon. She said, that's funny. I got a letter from them about three months ago asking if I wanted to talk with them about selling these to Amazon. And I just never got around to doing anything with it. It's a two-person business, so you can imagine some stuff goes by the wayside. Um, she says, I know I'd love to have my stuff on Amazon, but I just didn't know what to do next. You know? And it's like, thank God she procrastinated so long story short, um, we ended up with a deal, and it was a handshake exclusive, you know, and I told her, she's written two books with, of patterns and then has um, all these kits with her hand-dyed yarn in, and I said, I'll get your books up on Amazon, and they'll be available for prime shipping, and we'll do your best-selling kits as a test, you know, and I said, we're going to test them and see, we're not just going to jump right in, and I said, you don't have to do anything, you just let me handle it. And I said, the only thing I ask of you is that you don't do this deal with anybody else. I said, because I'm going to do all the hard work of getting them listed on Amazon and blah, 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 blah. Um, and she was like, she says, oh, my God, so my stuff can be on Amazon and I don't have to do it? And I said, yeah, and even better, I'll, after the initial test, and we agreed that you know, she'll send me one of like a half a dozen of her kits and a few copies of the book to test, after the initial test, I'll pay you for the stuff up front. You don't have to wait 90 or 120 days for Amazon to pay you. And she's like, oh, my God, this is like the best thing ever. So, um, so it, it is possible to break in even if Amazon is knocked on the door. And that was kind of a, you know, a way to, I was really discouraged about because Amazon came on and one of my big vendors was like, oh, geez. But you know what? I'm thinking maybe they'll find out it's not such a good deal and they'll quit selling to them and we'll be back to where we were. I think these small vendors especially, you know, the mom and pop manufacturer, 
the two or three person business who has, you know, they're manufacturing in their garage or a small warehouse, you know, down the street or whatever. I think these are the kind of vendors that we will succeed with where Amazon won't. Um, The one that Amazon has jumped on is a fairly large company that I had to myself for a long time with a couple other merchant fulfilled sellers. So I'm not surprised because they're, they're pretty big and they can probably absorb the cash flow hit that will, it, that will happen. But, you know, mom and pop businesses really can't. Cash flow is what kills most businesses. So I just want you guys to realize that, um, that it is possible to be Amazon at their own game. And it is, I think, in the past few months has become easier to being an online-only um, retailer you know, and say, and people are not going to look at as bad at this as they realize if their brick and mortar sales, sales to brick and mortar stores start falling off, they've got to make it up somewhere and it's online. So um, Mary Jo, Jo, Amazon has a fleet of buyers, okay? So they were at this trade show. You know, they're at every trade show. They are, they are. And Amazon also, well, Amazon doesn't have, there are also groups of companies who have developed Um, many of them started by former Amazon employees that go to trade shows looking for products to take to Amazon, to sell to Amazon directly. They're not selling them themselves. They are like the the broker or the middleman between the manufacturer and Amazon. And for that, they get a finder's fee or a percentage of sales or however their contract reads. So, So they're out there just like us. They're you know, they're looking at Kickstarter projects. They're looking at Indiegogo projects. They're reading newsletters. They're doing the, the research that I, you know, tell you guys to do. They're looking at new stuff that other stores are carrying. They're just constantly researching. And um, there are probably dozens, if not hundreds, of buyers working for Amazon that are just looking for products. Um, I, at a show about two years ago, a craft and hobby show, is where I um, I found out about this um, these companies that are now set up to broker products between the small vendor and Amazon, and I found out about it because the guy I got an exclusive from gave me the card of these people and said they were just here, but you know he said I just didn't feel comfortable with selling to Amazon. So um, so that's how they find out. They find out just how we do. Um, in addition, they have the vendors going directly to Amazon. So say, Mary Jo, you, you developed a new product in your garage and you thought it was the next greatest thing. I would, and I'm sure a lot of them do. I'd contact Amazon and say, hey, do you want to buy my product? You know, that's, that's just how businesses work. You know, you, you, you try to get it where it needs to be. Um, there is lots of competition, but that's business. You know, there's no business that doesn't have competition. Um, That's kind of the whole game and the whole battle of it. And the advantage we have um, is that we can move a bit faster than Amazon. You know, we don't have to we don't have to find the product at that trade show, and then take it to our buying team and have them look at it and approve it and then take it to the, the people who do the POs and approve that and, and all of that kind of stuff. Um, we can move faster. 
you know, some of the stuff I got at this most recent show, which I got home a week ago yesterday, I already have here. Um, it's a, it arrived um, early in the week. I've made the new listings for it, and it's back out the door on the way to Amazon. So um, first, first to market helps, and it may not be that I'll be the only one selling it forever, but at least a couple things have happened. One is mine is there first before anybody else's. Um, and secondly, I can make a good product page because I can tell you Amazon is hiring a bunch of untrained monkeys in the, you know that old thing about you put enough monkeys in a room with a typewriter and they'll make a novel? Well, they have, they have them also making new Amazon listings because they're as bad as um, any I've seen. I made new listings for a product. Um, about, like I got the product in January, so I made them probably early February. And I made a nice multi-variation listing um, for these um, pottery things. And they were, barcodes were provided by the manufacturer on these, a rare case in crafts. So I used those. And as I was replenishing yesterday, I happened to poke around. And so even though I've made a really nice listing with great images and everything, Amazon has come on these products in the past month or so, made new listings for them that are crap. They're crap listings. How do, are they allowed to, be, to do this? when I have the official registered barcodes from the manufacturer. But they, I guess they didn't want to be on my listing, so they went ahead and made their own, and it's terrible. And one thing I have learned is that you ask to merge, you can ask for listings to be merged, um, but, and, but they will not keep the listing that you say if Amazon has made one of those listings you want to merge. I hope that makes sense. So... So I could, if I wanted to say, okay, take that clay the pottery listing and merge it with mine and keep mine, because you can specify which one to keep, they won't keep mine if Amazon made that listing that I want to merge into it. So even though Amazon's is horrible and they violated their own rules by um, making a second listing when a first one exists, um, they won't allow those to be merged. Or they will merge them but keep the crummy listing because it's Amazon's, which I think is out total insanity, isn't it? I mean, there's, it, that kind of thing begs some common sense. And I think Amazon has lost total control of the catalog. You know, they had a tenuous hold on it for a long time, like fingernail hold. But when I see them making listings that are like this, um, you know, they look like they were made by some of the, the um, Chinese sellers that put, you know, 500 words in the title, trying to stuff every keyword in the title. They're that kind of listing, you know, with, with the titles in all caps and, and everything that they say not to do. So, so the fact that you can't ask a page to be merged when Amazon has made the crummy one just is really annoying. So I'm just going to leave it. The stuff's selling okay. It could probably sell better if there was only one page, but my page is better. And, yeah, good point, Val. Most only have one image. Mine has, like, four. It's got the set of tools, and then it's got a close-up of the, the heads, the working end of each of these tools. So, yeah, the, this is one where the vendor supplies really good, high-quality image already on a white background. So that one was really, really good to do. Um, I have noticed at 
this show that a lot of um, the vendors are saying that they have they'll supply images and whatever you need. Um, those who are understanding online are getting it, though probably only half of them understand that you need a white background. But I think you know having something is better than nothing to start with. And I've had some who say that they will retake them um, and get them out of the whole lifestyle um, thing. I have a needle gauge manufacturer that makes like hundreds of different designs, and they're all beautifully staged, kind of like Etsy pictures, where you know it's leaning up against a glass goblet with you know a silk piece of fabric um, trailing around. And I said that doesn't work for me. I have to have it plain, flat, straight down on a white background. And they're willing to retake a bunch of them, um, which will help a lot because anytime you don't have to do it, saves time. So I found that asking for images, um, people are getting better and better about the wholesalers that I talk to are more willing to help you with the images. And I think this all goes back to the whole change in the past six months in, you know, the, uh, the economy. They, you know, they can't not change um, or they won't survive. You know, it's um, it's an interesting time to see that those who are unwilling, what will happen to them. Um, I'm still working on the one weaving loom supplier. They I, they were a vendor of mine when I had a brick and mortar store in Hawaii. So I have actually known them and physically known them, been to the factory in Colorado for 30-some years. It's still a family-owned company. The guy and his brother started it, and now the guy and his wife run it. The brother went off to do other things. Um, and so last year, I met with them at the show and said, I want to start carrying your stuff again, but I'm online only and I'm Amazon only. And I spent like an hour throwing everything I could at this, you know, about I'll do the listings, I'll make your product seem really good. I said, they're the ones who say, well, yeah, if you have a brick-and-mortar store, we'll allow you. And they've got some of their products on Amazon with really crummy listings because, you know, uh, brick and mor- some brick-and-mortar store owner who feels, oh, I'll just put this up on Amazon doesn't have to understand how to make a good listing. So their stuff is not presented really well. You know, no bullet points and like a two-word description and that kind of stuff. You know, we're talking items that can sell for $1,000 or more. You need to do better. You know, um, so I so she ended up. I talked to her about brand registry so she can protect the brand on Amazon. It went on and on and on. And she's one of these people that's really um, hard to read because she never has any facial expression whatsoever, except like this deadpan silence kind of thing. So it's really hard to to get a read on where you're headed. So she said, in the end, she she sent me a, a text last year at the end of the show saying, I thought about it. No, we're not interested. That was kind of it. So so I did not make an appointment to talk with her again at this show, but I went over to their booth because they have a new product that I wanted for myself. You know, And they were allowing people at the show to get one of this new item wholesale. So I said, yeah, I'm going to go get one. You know, and this an item sells for like 300 so that's a substantial saving. So I went over and her husband was there, and he wasn't there last year. And I met this guy in 1981 when I toured their factory in Colorado. So that's how long I've known him. And he recognized me because we've caught up at other shows and stuff. But, you know, 
And so I said, Barry, I said, what do I have to do to get Jane to sell to me? That's his wife. And he says, well, it's all up to her. I said, well, I'm not getting anywhere. What can I do? And he says, well, I don't know. Because, you know, when she's got her mind made up, she's got her mind made up. And that kind of told me that nothing's going to happen. So I think this is a point where I just, like, need to get this one out of my head and quit thinking that it's a possibility because it's not going to be. She's just set on it and, you know, fine, good for you. Um, they make a little small product that's really popular with school, schools and school kids and scouts and all the summer camps and all that. And they are um, fighting counterfeits like crazy on Amazon. Like she says, like, you know, every time I get rid of one, another one pops up, you know, using their trademark name. And these are made, these particular ones are made in China. Um, and, you know, I tried to explain to her why that's happening and how brand registered would help. But, you know, so, you know, she's going to be stuck fighting these counterfeits when if, if she let me help, she could get out of it, you know. But, but there's a point where you just have to give up and say, um, not going to deal with it anymore, can't, can't fight it, and move on. So I want you guys to realize that it happens in every field. Um, you can't let that um, stop you from doing what you need to do with your business. So just move on. So um, another thing we talked about, or I talked with wholesalers at this recent show, which I think if you go to shows, which I really hope you all do, I think Mary Jo's going to one today or tomorrow or this weekend with a new bag, um, is that um, things change. And what may be true at a show today may not be true in a month. And I saw this change happen in six months, that big changes in how the economy is working and how it's affecting businesses. So, so, um, so there you go. You have to be kind of faster than everybody else and take advantage of these changes. Um, one thing I found is I have started saying, in the beginning of talks, when they ask what to, um, what kind of store do you have? Because, you know, it could be a general, at this show, even though it's the National Needlework Association, which is cross-stitch, needlepoint, um, crochet, knitting, spinning, and weaving are the five or six um, things that are under its um, venue. Um, a lot of people who were there had like general craft store, you know, like like we do knitting and we also do scrapbooking and whatever. So people ask what kind of store you have. And I just say, I live in a very small town in a very rural area, so I am online only. I don't pull the Amazon thing out to begin with. Um, that comes later. So that gives people a chance to say, well, we don't sell to online retailers, you know, and Based on their attitude, you may just want to say, yeah, fine, I'll move on, you know, or based on how much you love the product. It's like, do you know this product would be killer? Then maybe you can work out, you know, something that to convince them that they need to be selling to online retail online retailers like us. And the big one is your brick-and-mortar stores aren't everywhere. I don't care who you are, your brick-and-mortar stores aren't everywhere, and you are losing a huge chunk of business by not selling online. Huge chunk. I mean, it, it's, 
it's not like even if you had a local store that sold XYZ, maybe somebody's housebound and can't get out but wants XYZ, you know? So, um, so yeah, you, you really need to, to convince people. One thing I discovered at this show, the first time it's ever happened at a show, um, but I want you guys to be aware of it, is that a vendor who, um, they've been around like forever, since the days of, you know, um, newspaper print kind of catalogs in the 60s and 70s. And um, the business is now being run by the son and grandson of the woman who found not expensive enough but they have a huge library of very obscure um, needlework books you know stuff that you would never ever find anywhere but a specialty place and also a lot of tools and equipment that are expensive enough to sell on Amazon so um, so Within all these SKUs, I just started scanning books in their booth. They had an assortment, you know, and they said, we have everything online. And I'm like, oh, man, there's some books that are like, you know, wholesale is $10, and they're they're selling on Amazon. For The one seller has it at $49.99, and it wasn't a 5 million sales rank. It was, you know, less than a million. So I'm kind of like willing to take a chance on those kind of things, and you can buy one of anything. It's not like there are huge numbers. And the best part of the deal is their, their initial opening order in general terms is $250, which is not bad. But if you ordered at the show, their initial opening order was 50 And then their reorder amount, no matter when you open, is $50. So to me, it was worth it to pick up you know, several books to make that $50 to have that account open so I don't have to worry about the bigger opening order later. Now that I'm in and have an account, good to go. Can order online, um, direct on their website, and only have a $50 uh, reorder thing. So that's one thing to look at is at shows you go to, that um, maybe they have no initial opening order because they're at a show and want to move stuff. Um, or maybe it is a lot smaller that um, that um, in this case where it was 50 versus 250, you know? Um, yeah, the bundling thing, d- yeah, definitely that's a possibility. I just, after, you know, looking at this whole booth of, you know, wall-to-wall little gadgets and tools and things, um, my eyes started crossing, so I thought, okay, I'll just do some books so I can get the account open and then worry about the rest later, like when I'm at leisure, but I think that's definitely a possibility. There's there are very logical things that could be grouped together. Um, they specialize in lace-making stuff. Um, so it's, there is some very logical things you could put together. They also have a lot of stuff for Sashiko, which is a Japanese embroidery that you could put together, stuff that would make, make sense in, um, in the whole scheme of things. But I now have an account with them, and it was only $50 instead of 250 and the five, I think I bought like seven books. So they'll go into Amazon when they show up, and we'll see. You know, they, I know they won't sell fast, but the book doesn't take up much space, and I only had to buy one of um, one of each copy. So we can see. I mean, I don't think that there's a huge market for, 
you know, a, a book about Norwegian lace that's in Norwegian, but I know there is some market for it. Um, I bought books in Norway for knitting. And because Nor- people in Norway speak like flawless English, I was in this yarn store and it didn't dawn on me. I saw the patterns, you know, in the booklets and I bought some yarn and bought some patterns to take home as kind of a little memento. And I got it out after I got home to start knitting and I didn't realize, dumb me, that the pattern would be in Norwegian. So fortunately there's an online and a, and a printed knitter's dictionary that translates knitting terms from, you know, a couple dozen different languages. So it was enough where I could actually follow along and figure out how to do it. But I thought, now how stupid of me to not realize I'm in Norway and I'm buying something printed, it would be Norwegian. Now, not, you know, not uh, the smoothest move on my part. And Norwegian is a language where it is, um, you can't easily figure it out based on English. Like Spanish, you can figure out some things in French and German. You can sort of figure out something, but Norwegian isn't one of those languages because we don't have a whole lot of um, history with with uh, Norwegian. So anyway, so that's another thing to be on the lookout for is vendors that lower their initial opening order to a much more reasonable way to, to test new products. And that's what I look at is all these small opening orders is testing them. Test the products as small as you can. Your besides the, the cash outlay, you've got time in making a listing. But um, I have found that I've started keeping notes on which are like my best listing for each kind of thing. So um, I bought a line of knitting bags at the show um, because some of them were in zebra print and I'm like, okay, that, that's perfect. So I bought this line um, I have a listing that I've marked as my best knitting bag listing. So the keywords are the best and all of that. So since I made the listing, it's very easy for me to go in and copy the listing, and then I only have to change a few things in it, not start from scratch with everything. So if you're making listings, make a note of, like, which is your best listing for a purse? Which is your best listing for a lamp? Which is your best listing for a dog collar? And just make a note of that ASIN, and then when it comes time to make a new one, go in and just copy the listing and change the things that need to be changed. Um, It will save you a lot of time, especially on the keyword part, because I find that's the part of the listing that slows me down the most, Um, is just, you know, either finding the document where I put the best keywords in and pasting them in or whatever. That, to me, is the slowest. So... If I can keep all of that um, set, um, it makes it a lot faster to create the new listings. And based on like the past couple months on Amazon, I would sure rather create a new listing um, than um, than um, fix one. Oh my God, fixing one is like the worst, you know, thing to do. I don't know if you guys have been dealing with it lately, but Um, either it goes really smoothly and the person who's doing it believes everything you said and looks at the website and says, yeah, we'll we'll let this one go, we'll fix it, or it's a battle. And the worst battle is I have found there are iPhone case sellers who obviously did it a while ago and their cases for like iPhone 4s and 5s, so they're 
they've obviously been a while, um, who appear to me, based on what I've seen, to have like made up UPC codes. They aren't even ones that they bought. They just put stuff in to get there. And they, so you put your real UPC for a product. I mean, t- we're talking manufacturer's UPC, not, and I'm not talking about any UPCs I bought from Leading Edge on eBay. I have products from a big manufacturer who has a real UPC code printed on the product and everything. And you go to put that in, and it pulls up an iPhone case. Okay? It's like, oh, that's so annoying. Because then what you have to do is list your yarn under the listing for the iPhone case, change everything the way it should be, and then you have to go back and tell them to cleave the listing is what it's called. Basically pull them apart even though they have the same UPC. And they'll want to see a photo of the UPC on your product. Um, But I find that that part is the most massively annoying part. I've got one that I've been waiting two weeks for them to do it. And I'm sure not going to send the product in until it's done because you can imagine what a mess that would be. So stuff is still sitting here waiting for them to fix it. And and um, you know, in typical Amazon fashion, they don't read the email the first time. They, and then they copy and paste this nine-mile-long thing that has nothing to do with what you ask. And then, then you have to go back and ask, please escalate, because if you can't read, you can't fix, you know. Um, and it just it takes forever. So that I, I would still much rather make a new listing than fix a listing. Um, it's, Elizabeth, it's called cleaving, C-L-E-A-V-E. So that's the term Amazon um, told me to use. That's what they say. We will cleave the listing. So basically whack it apart. Um, I gather, Elizabeth, you must have had that kind of trouble happen with stuff. Don't tell me it was iPhone cases too. But um, I can't imagine if you are like, the, the head guy in the catalog department of Amazon, you probably don't have any hair left because you realize that this whole mess has gotten out of control and that, that you know, something's got to happen. Um, and I can't imagine also that, that they think it's okay for these new listings to be created by Amazon that are so bad. Because you guys can remember even not too long ago that, you know, if Amazon made a listing, it was a good listing, you know. But now I've seen them make multi-variation listings on stuff that has no relationship. So I was looking for paper towels the other day. Um, and we do, we have brand we like, and it's actually cheaper to order them on Amazon than it is to buy them here locally. So I was looking to, for the paper towels, and I came across the Bounty Huge Roll um, listing, and they had a couple different sizes, like 24 and 18 or whatever, 6. And um, so as I'm clicking through the variations, all of a sudden they have Kleenex as one of the variations. Now, to me, that makes absolutely no sense. You've got a variation that has like six variations, and all the variations are the number of rolls in the package. And um, then you put one variation for Kleenex. It's not even the same brand. It's not Bounty. It's Kleenex, you know. That kind of thing just drives me nuts. So anyway, um, yeah, a new piece, uh, the um, the um, UPC catalog eBay is implementing too. And 
there again, the vast majority of my stuff doesn't have UPCs, so I have to go in and enter. And if you run into trouble, here's a hint. The words does not apply in that item specific for the UPC code, that allows it to show up in search based on the other things. If you don't put that UPC code in, it won't show up in search. So you have to put something in there. Um, and those are the words from, that I got um, from someone who knows that either does not apply are the words that you need just those words specifically in the UPC field of the item specifics to make it show up in search. Um, because think of all the things sold on eBay that don't have UPC codes. You know, I mean, 99% of the collectibles don't, you know. So, uh, so as far as why the listing creations, um, Amazon is outsourcing. The question is, are, is Amazon outsourcing their listing creations to sellers from China? Why are they so bad now? They're outsourced, but I think they're outsourced to India. Um, that um, the same people who, or, or the people who do our seller support stuff, there are other people who do listing creation for it. Um, and if you don't know what you're doing, you can sure mess up the catalog as they have. Um, Deborah says, did you know that Google implemented a UPC requirement to index product pages now? Um, so you mean Amazon pages? Or which, which pages, Deborah? Um, oh, okay, she says, many Amazon pages do not pull up on Amazon shopping anymore. Interesting. So all those pages that somehow didn't get a UPC code assigned, whether they're in everything else or whatever, or those old, old pages that are around, is that, that what you're talking about? Because that's interesting. Um, so... Um, I'm going to wait for Deborah to answer that one. Um, oh, okay. So she, that's, she says, yeah. So interesting. So I'm assuming if we are using UPC codes from the manufacturer, that will show up. Or if we're using the, the other UPC codes that we've been using, it will show up. But I wonder how that affects brands. Like I'm working on now, one of my brands to get an exemption because they're handmade products from India, and I've been using um, leading-edge codes on them. But I got the, the woman who owns the company has just today sent me the signed thing saying, you know, we'd like an exemption because these are handmade, blah, blah, blah. Um, that would be, you know, that's a question I might ask um, someone on the Amazon leadership team is how that would affect things if you have that exemption. Because um, that wouldn't be good. And then I'd be willing to use the leading-edge codes just so it could show up in the shopping feed. Wow, so no UPC. Google says it won't pull up on Google Shopping. So all those exemptions eesh, would not be a good thing. Wow, that's interesting to, uh, to know. I hadn't heard that one, but it's also something to keep aware of as we move forward. Um, because I was going to... Um, uh, I was going to go through and all of these vendors of mine that I have a really good relationship with that don't have UPCs, I was going to try to get exemptions for all of them. Now that, that's a big rethink on my part that maybe I'm not going to do it um, until the time that I can't list with leading edge codes on these products. And then maybe I'll move forward. So thank you for that, Deborah. So you just kind of um, saved me a ton of time trying to get all those done because it's yeah, it's not like it's hard. It's just tedious. 
Um, and Deborah's saying um, that's the big reason, or one of the reasons eBay put the big push on UPC codes. So I'm wondering what happens with that where it says does not apply. Has eBay, um, has eBay made a deal with Google Shopping that that will count as something that will be indexed? Um, yeah, go with the code, be a risk taker. Yep, I will. I think so. You know, um, it's not like they're expensive. Um, and yeah, um, there's a comment in chat. I'm sorry, I took my glasses off for a second. I can't see who did it. That says, I have over 600 items on eBay and no UPCs on any of them. Guess I'll be editing um, a lot of products. That's what I did for the past two months is I would take like 10 a day on eBay and edit them to either get the UPC code um, in there or do the does not apply as the UPC code. Um, um, just so it will show up in eBay search, let alone Google, but in eBay. And I have to admit, I have been really lax on working on eBay. I do the bare minimum to keep my listings up and going, and that's it. Just because the time, I want to keep the store live just in case the world ends and something happens. But, um, but, um, I can make a lot more money selling on Amazon, so that's where I want to put my time. Um, so there's two questions. Karina said, if you ha don't have a UPC for eBayms and you can bulk edit, it's pretty easy. And um, someone said, bulk edit does not apply. So, um, so that's a question you'll have to, to check. The chat's going really fast now. Um, Amazon listings do show on Google Shopping because I check mine every once in a while, see if they show up there. Um, and Carolyn, she, Carolyn says she got all her eBay listings, um, but it will take hours. She do 50 a day to get it done. I kind of was lazier, and I did like 10 a day. I think I've got 500 eBay listings, and I got lazy. And, and um, oh, oh, okay. So um, use bulk edit to put in the does not apply. Okay, got it. Um, so yeah, so that would be an easy thing on your things that don't have UPC. Mine was a little more tedious because some did and some didn't, so I had to break them out. And oh, Carolyn, 1,100 listings. Yikes, yikes. Um, but anyway, so that's that's a whole other kettle of fish. That's one thing where we have to be quick and, and nimble. Um, I've been having a problem on eBay since we're talking about for a minute. Of it does, I don't do good to cancel. I don't know why. I just don't. I do 30 days at a time, uh, mostly because I just want to check my inventory numbers and don't want to run out kind of stuff where you oversell. But when I relist, even though I use Vendio, and I have set my specifics on Vendio to have a 30-day return policy so I can do the top-rated seller thing, blah, 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 it does not um, it does not stick and it reverts back to the fourteen days that it used to be every single time. So I need to dig in and rethink that. And yeah, Carolyn, I think I need to do good to cancel. Is that what you're saying? I'm crazy. I just need to do good good to cancel. Yeah. Like like get a handle on the inventory numbers and just let them roll. Um, yeah. I okay. Okay, I will make a promise. Starting today on my relist, I'll do them good to cancel. How's that sound? And that will say once, I guess, once it's fixed in the 30-day um, the thirty day policy is in place, then it will stick because it never goes. So there you go. 
Um, Carolyn, I have to admit, it's really easy to relist in Vimeo. It, I spend like a minute a day. But I also now am spending like five minutes a day finding or editing those ones to change to my default business policy in eBay, which is 30 days. It doesn't want to stick, and it keeps popping back, and I don't know. But, um, but anyway, yeah, Spirit Tracker, we have – that's kind of like the, the story of our lives. We, we uh, negotiate – the negotiating with supplier Spirit Tracker is tonight on the live webinar with Ron. Today was about talking with wholesalers, so not really negotiating. Um, so, yeah, so be sure you check in tonight because Ron's in charge of that one, and it's, the garage is a movie studio again, and it's all set up. And um, be sure to, to um, um, uh, phone in live or join in live. The link is in the um, Facebook group. It will be about negotiating. So, like, we're going to play devil's advocate, and I'm going to be, like, the vendor, and Ron will be the the person trying to buy from him. And I have to admit, I'm really good at throwing up roadblocks, so we'll see how good he, he does in this. And then we'll switch places and all of that kind of stuff to to talk about how you actually can um, negate these things that the vendor is going to say to you. That's the whole negotiating thing um, to get them to do it. So the, the link is in, it's pinned in the Facebook group. Um, so... Be sure you use that link. Be sure you are logged into your YouTube account with the email you gave to Ron to sign up for this because it's, it's private. Um, so I think it will be a really good one um, because these are the kind of things we all face. And whether it's, it's in person at a trade show or on the phone or in emails, we're going to have these roadblocks th thrown up when we want to do business with somebody. And having some kind of wording in somewhere in your brain for each of these kind of scenarios that a wholesaler throws up to you will help you feel a lot more confident in, um, in what you're doing. And I have to say my friend um, who went to the trade show with me, she's been to like six shows with me now, and she knew nothing about this at all when we started, nothing. And she's been listening and paying attention. And she now knows if I miss a question to ask, like, do you have any show specials? That's the one I tend to forget the most. Do you have any show specials? She's right there to, before we leave. Do you have any show specials kind of thing, you know? So, um, um, so anyway. So, yeah, Shelly, we counted episode eight. It's episode eight of the three-part. We just decided to call them all um, wholesale sourcing webinars. So, yeah, we're on part eight right now. And there's going to be 157, we've heard, um, just on the, uh, yeah, it's episode one in negotiation, but Ron wanted to just keep them all just like webinars and not do a whole bunch of different series kind of things. So that's why we're on eight. So um, back to the last things I learned about wholesalers at this show is um, for the most part, they love to talk about their products. So if you can either be really enthusiastic or really interested in their products, or if you can fake it, Spend the time to let them talk because that's what a lot of them want to do, especially if they invented it um, or, in my case, um, somebody, you know, developed the colors for this yarn, uh, whatever, they want to talk about it. Um, so let them um, either develop the interest or learn how to fake it to listen to it all. And I have found what really, really helps 
is as they're talking about their product, latch on to something that they've said, whatever it is, and use that as a jumping-off point to keep the conversation going. And it could be anything that they say about whether about they just moved into a new warehouse or, you know, this color uh, palette was developed because I went to um, Africa on a trip, um, whatever it is, and then try to find some common ground with that thing that you pick up. And that could be the thing, not always, but it could be the thing that pushes them over into picking you as the person to sell the product on Amazon. So it really, really can be. I ran into a yarn vendor um, who is from uh, Bradford in Yorkshire in the United Kingdom. And I've actually been to Bradford. Bradford. I have a friend who lives quite close um, in a little village, and they have a a fabulous uh, motion picture museum in Bradford. Um, So by saying, oh, yes, I have friends who lived in Hebden Bridge, and we we took the train up to Bradford to visit him. That kind of like, oh, my gosh, you know our town kind of thing, you know. That can build a relationship, you know. So don't don't just let things roll over you. Latch on to something in the whole thing, and it will help. Um, I find that that business is so impersonal that people want some sort of personal touch brought back to it with you as their their wholesaler and um, the relationship between the two. So think about that, whether it's on the phone or in person or something, find some sort of common ground in this whole conversation that you can help. Um, I have a scarf I knit a couple years ago, and I found this yarn on Etsy, and like it's like the best thing I've ever made. It's not a fancy scarf, but the yarn is beautiful and the pattern I picked to do it in just like works perfectly. And I get more compliments on this scarf than I have on anything I've ever made. I mean, airline pilots, when you're getting off the plane, they'll say, oh, I love your scarf. You know, it's that kind of thing. People in the airport stop you, people in restaurants. So, so I saw that this woman is going to be at the show. Um, it's her first show. She's been a small you know, person who dyes the yarn at home and sells it on Etsy. So she's like moving into the big time. And I saw she was on the list of vendors. So I contacted her and said, you know, I love your yarn. I get lots of compliments on the stuff I've made from it. Can I have an appointment? So I set up an appointment with her just to show I was really serious. And then I wore the scarf to the appointment. Now, this was Washington, D.C. in summer, but I wore it, you know. And it was like, oh, my God, you'd have thought, you know, the world had spun around three times because she was so happy to see her yarn in something somebody had finished and then somebody coming back to buy it wholesale. So I bought, you know, a fair bit of her yarn um, because it's all one of a kind um, and it's in a big enough skein to do a project. So it's something that will work on Amazon in that way. Um, but... She took pictures of me wearing it, which is like I said, okay, only from the neck down, um, and put it on Instagram and all that kind of stuff with her products. So she's really good at social media stuff, which will help because I'll send her the links to the pages on Amazon when her stuff is up, and then she can start promoting it on Amazon too. She's one of the ones that doesn't think Amazon's a bad guy. It's like another way to get my product out there. So um, look at that part when you're talking to vendors too is ask, will you link to my Amazon store on your website to show where they can buy the product? 
can you help me promote these listings on Amazon so we can gain traffic? So all that kind of stuff can be talked about um, with your vendors. Um, if, and building the relationship really, really does help. So um, I'm going to have to sign off now because we've got to get ready for the um, Thrifty for Profit podcast, which we're going to talk about. Deborah, it's about fear and anxiety in your business. Is that right? Because I think that if I have that correct, it sounded like a really good topic because um, with summer sales being slower than Q4, you always kind of wonder, am I doing the right thing? Am I like an idiot to be doing this? What am I doing wrong? Uh, yeah, so, so be sure to tune in um, here on TalkShoe to the Thrifting for Profit podcast. And don't forget tonight, live the um, seminar, webinar on negotiating. Um, it's not only going to be, I think, a really eye-opener on if, if you haven't been to a show or haven't negotiated online or over the phone about how you can get around a lot of these stumbling points that we run across. I think, I think it'll be really valuable. I do believe there's prizes if you're there live. Um, the link, again, is in the Facebook group. Um, so you can sign in to YouTube with the um, email that you gave Ron when he set you up, and then you should be good to go. There's chat there. I'll be running the chat room also. Um, and I think the chat will be really important because it's a place for you guys to tell us what are the roadblocks that have been thrown up as you're trying to negotiate with a wholesaler. What, what do you need help with? And then we can do the, the role play kind of thing to help you out with that, to get, get you over that stumbling block and build a little confidence on it. So um, with that, thanks, you guys, for joining. It's so good to be back. Um, one thing I'll have to say, thanks for all the thoughts and prayers um, for my mom. She went back in the hospital uh, while I was in Washington, and they did the surgery. And um, the doctor, who, who is a very cool guy, I call him surfer doc because he looks like 12 years old and he wears, you know, cut jeans and a torn-up T-shirt and a baseball cap on backward and Converse shoes with no laces. And, and so surfer doc... Um, took almost eight hours of surgery, um, which was terrifying because I was in Washington at the time. So she had um, a huge chunk of her um, small intestine removed, um, the stuff that had ruptured that would not heal. So, um, so they did that, and she has an ileostomy, which is like a colostomy, except it's from your small intestine, not your colon, your large intestine. So... Um, she, yeah, I didn't say anything, Shelly, because I didn't want to worry everybody. But anyway, so that was a week ago Friday while I was in Washington, and she went home yesterday. And she sounds better than she sounded in three months. It's like my old mom is back. So um, thank Dr. Rosing for this, who was just awesome. Um, and thank all of you guys for your prayers and thoughts and support. Um, it meant a lot, but just to hear her um, when I talked to her, they were driving home yesterday from the hospital and talking with her, it's like, sounded like my old mom. And those of you who heard her podcast um, kind of know that she's a very positive, upbeat person, but she hadn't sounded that way for months, but she does now. So it's like, yay. So anyway, so now we just have to, it's the food intake and fluid intake is highly critical that, that she, you know, do this properly because 
it's coming out of your your small intestine, which is more serious than the colostomy out of your colon. So anyway, enough of that. So um, so that's like the great news that she's home and her dogs are home with her. And um, while she was in the hospital, my stepdad got the bar stools and the dining room table for the house. So they actually have a place to sit and eat now and stuff like that. So um, she's really excited about enjoying the house now. So I'll see you guys on Thrifting for Profit with Deborah Conrad in about 50 minutes. And I'll see you tonight on YouTube with Ron and I talking about negotiating. So thanks for joining us. And bye-bye, everybody. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.